This is KMTT. This is Ezra Beck. This is the weekly shear on Parshat Shavua. Last week, when we read Parshat Vayetze, I pointed out that Parshat Vayetze and Parshat Vayishlach uh, are both, should be understood, among other things, as blueprints for the relationship of the Jewish people, of Israel, the children of Yaakov, and the non-Jewish environments. And I mentioned that in Vayishlach it's explicit in Chazal, that they uh, go over the meeting of Yaakov and Esav and derive ideas and advice of the relationship of uh, <coughs> Jews and non-Jews, uh, hostile non-Jews. And last week I tried to show how that was true in a different sense in the previous week's Parashim Vayetzi as well. There it wasn't political, it was social, how to live among them, whereas in Vayishlach it's political. Uh, Yaakov as the leader of the Jews strategy uh, to avoid conflict or to succeed in conflict with Esav as a, as a dangerous foe. Okay, now we're in Parshat Vayishlach, and I'd like to comment a little bit about that idea and develop a particular uh, idea found in the Medrash that sort of derives from it. Um, the most obvious example, and this is mentioned in Rashi, Allah Torah, as, 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 as Pshat, um, is in the beginning of the Parsha when Yaakov sends messengers and presents, basically, to Esav. And then he divides the camp into two. And, uh, and then he um, <clears throat> goes and he prays to God. So Rashi, a very famous Rashi, Rashi points out that um, a tripartite strategy on Yaakov's uh, behalf uh, the most uh, the most technically obvious thing that Yaakov does, it's, it's out of the ordinary, is he divides the camp into two and says, if we get into trouble and Esav attacks one of my camps, encampments, so I have two of them, the other one will flee. So someone will survive. You have to prepare for defeat. Uh, on that, Rashi uh, says, Doron is a present, in other words, a bribe. The tefillah, which is what he begins to do in the next pasuk, Feed in war, but it's a, it's a it's a military strategy of dividing the camp into into two. Uh, Rashi doesn't have the next line that's found in the midrash on that. Umikan gamlatid lavo. But I mean, the point is that that Rashi's paying attention. It's not a private story here. Uh, Yaakov investing a lot of energy, and Chazal really uh, used this, and this is very often quoted uh, with different ramifications for Jewish history and for Jewish strategy and for Jewish policy even today. Um, we learn from Yaakov to work on three levels. Uh, appeasement, Doron, uh, Milchama, if necessary. Sometimes doesn't work giving in. You have to, you have to fight back. And the third method, very important method, is Tefillah. We, the end would depend on, on God's will, and therefore we, we turn to God. As an example, an extreme example of how seriously the Medrash took this, I want to quote a Medrash that's found towards the end of the, at the very end, of the interplay between Yaakov and Esav, not quoted by Rabbi, because uh, it doesn't really relate to, directly to the Pshat. 
And in fact, I, I think that it's a bit of it's a piece of humor. I think it's a joke in Chazal, but nonetheless, it shows how seriously they thought we should take the blueprint of Yaakov meeting Esav as a blueprint for the future. Uh, the last thing that Esav and Yaakov discuss, Esav suggests that he'll travel together with Yaakov. Yaakov says, "No, it's not good. You, you move past my little children. Won't be able to do it." You'll come to visit me, I'll come to visit you. He promises, and in the end, Esav says to Yaakov, Pasuk Perek Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Tedvav, 33, 16, 15. Esav says, okay, I'm going to go ahead, but I'll leave you a few, a few soldiers, a few of the people who are with me to uh, help you out. Presumably, since they're all armed men, what Esav is really suggesting is an armed escort. Yaakov is a very rich man, a lot of children, a lot of cattle, a lot of, uh, a lot of sheep. Uh, he's easy pickings for people like Esau. Esau understands it very well, for marauders and bandits on the, on the way. Uh, he has no natural protection since he has no uh, covenant. He's not part of an alliance with the local, the local powers to be. So Esau says very cleverly, very uh, nicely, let me give you a few people to be with you. Whatever Esau's true intention was, the uh, disclosed intention is undoubtedly, they'll protect you, they'll, they'll help you out. Yaakov answers, Doesn't even explain why. Yaakov says, No need. Lama. It's okay. Don't bother. Emtsachein be'enei adoni. Rashi says, In the future, you'll do, do nice things to me. You don't have to do anything nice to me now. I don't need it. Uh, don't worry. It'll be okay. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, we're good. Don't, don't he, he understood. Apparently, this way Rashi understands it. Yaakov understood that Esau was trying very hard to show how nice he is to Yaakov. He's making an effort to, to give Yaakov things. After all, Yaakov just gave him a very expensive present. And so Yaakov says, ah, no, we're fine. There'll be other opportunities. Um, and that's the end. Esav went back to Seir, his land. Yaakov nasas Sukkot. Yaakov goes to a place called Sukkot in, uh, in, in, in Eretz Israel. But even though by it, they don't meet again. They don't meet again. So the Medrash has the following. Vayomer lo Esav atziga na'imacha. This is Medrash Rabbah. Perek Ayin Chet, 78-15. Vayomer lo Esav atziga na'imacha. Bikesh lelavoto. Esav offered to accompany Yaakov, lo kibel alav. Yaakov basically refused. He got out of it. He had to do it nicely. But he was way out of it that they shouldn't be accompanying him. You'll ask, why not? This is what the Medrash is asking. Why didn't Yaakov accept it? It's nice. No. Uh, when he said, uh, you know, I'll spend all my time with you, we understand, you don't have to explain, Yaakov doesn't trust Esau. But he's saying, I'll give you a few people to protect you. 
It's a good thing. Yaakov says, no, I don't want. So the, the, the Medish doesn't answer that question, but it tells a story. As I said, I think the story is a bit of a joke. Uh, there's a certain amount of humor. If we were closer to the, the source, it's a story about somebody who people knew or not that long ago was alive. It's meant to be a funny story. Rabbeinu, which means Rabbi Yudha Nasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the author of the Mishnah, who was the Nasi. He was the patriarch. And we know from the Gemaras, he had a close official and personal relationship with the Roman authorities. Personal relationship with Antoninus Kesar. And uh, therefore he was the leader of the Jewish community. And he was responsible for the Jews vis-à-vis the Roman administration. <coughs> when Chazal talk about relations of Yaakov and Esav, they mean the Jews and the Romans. Esav who Adom and Rabbi Rabbeinu kadhavi salik lemalchuta. When Rabbeinu HaKadosh would go to visit, had some dealings with the Malchut, with the Roman administration, before he would go, he would review this parsha. Apparently the Gersa should be not Arama'a, but Roma'a Imei. He would travel with Romans, with a Roman escort. Why? He, he read this Pasuk. Esav offered an escort, an Edomite escort. Yaakov said, no problem, no need. And that's what Rabbi uh, Nasi, who was going to visit the seat of Roman power in Eretz Israel, and he had to do it for some reason, more than once, so he would always do the review of the Pasha first, and therefore he wouldn't take any Romans with him. Chazman, lo istakelba. So one time, he didn't do the review of the Pasha. He was busy. And v'nasabi mevamayin. And therefore, the, some uh, cohort of Roman soldiers accompanied him, which was very nice. They were actually showing him honor. Uh, he wasn't some supplicant coming on his own to the Roman administration. It was a meeting of the Jewish royalty administration in, in Eretz Israel. And uh, he apparently had at his, uh, there was a uh, cohort of Roman soldiers, which would, and, and, and they offered, and he forgot to get out of it, because he hadn't double-checked the Pasha. And they went with him. Lohigiyala'ako. He didn't even get to Akko, which isn't far. Yudha Nasi is in the Galil. And apparently, don't know where he was going exactly. He was going up north. That's what it says in the Medrash Rabbah. The Roman soldiers who were with him uh, sold, in other words, they stole, and sold the horse that Rabbi Nasi was riding on. A, a more piquant, more humorous, version is found in the Yaakov Shimoni. It says they sold his, his garment. They basically stole his shirt. Uh, he's traveling with the Roman soldiers who are there clearly to protect him. They're his accompanying uh, soldiers. That's the way an important person travels. And on the way, they literally rip him off. Uh, and that's the end of the Medrash. In other words, the story itself, I think, is a joke. But we learn from the story is that he, Rabbi Nasi had a habit 
of reading this parasha every time he went to meet the Roman administration to see what he could learn. And he drew from it practical conclusions, ramifications, one of which was, don't travel with Roman soldiers. Don't let Esav give you a handful, not a danger. Esav, if Esav had stayed with all 400 people, that would have been a danger. And any minute, you could go back two days when Yaakov thought that Esav was going to come and kill him. It could happen again if the good feeling of the meeting went. went. But now it's not the danger that doesn't exist. It's a handful of soldiers. It's, it's ceremonial, almost. It, or even if it's practical, it just gives you a little bit of extra protection against others, but they can't overcome you and kill you. But the major points out, they're still not your friends. They can still sell the shirt off your back. And, and, and so that's an example of what happened with Rebbe. Uh, I don't know if that's what Yaakov was afraid of, but the, the Medrash is saying you should read this Tasha on its very careful details, not just the big picture, but on its careful details, and there's something to learn from each one of them. As an aside, I would point out, and I'm not saying this is a conclusion that one, one must draw, but uh, Jews around the world face a situation very similar to that of Rebbe, not exactly the same. Uh, do you want the police force of the Edom in which you live, the non-Jewish force in which you live, to be protecting you? It's a double-edged sword. What Rebbe discovered is that it's a double-edged sword having Roman soldiers protect you because they also are therefore given an opportunity to, uh, to sell your horse or to sell your, to sell your robe. Uh, Jewish communities today face a similar question when non-Jewish governments are offering them suggesting that they have police protection, sometimes army protection in Europe for their synagogues on Shabbat. Uh, in Europe, it's, it's a commonplace. Almost in most European capitals, you will see armed soldiers outside uh, synagogues on Shabbat. It's obviously a mixed blessing because it makes it hard to get into shore. Any tourist who's been to a European capital knows that he's asked for a passport, which he's not carrying because it's Shabbat. He's asked for a passport before he's allowed into shore. You have to sort of worm and figure and uh, finagle your way in. Uh, it's a mixed blessing just because of that. Or, in a larger sense, it's creating a, a, a barrier to attendance, to haphazard attendance, to someone just walking by and saying, wow, it's Shabbat, I'll go into shore. Uh, which is why synagogues in the United States are reluctant to agree to it. Uh, the Medrash is talking about something a little more inimical. Uh, they're actually not your friends. They're working for you, but they're not your friends. Should we be relying or encourage that sort of armed protection? Or, I guess the opposite is to rely on ourselves. So I'm not saying that the answer has to be you know, said no, because Yaakov said no, we should say no. But uh, there are differences. One can argue about it. But uh, I am suggesting that we do what, what Rebbe did. You read the parasha over and allow it to, to uh, infuse into your mind as part of your decision-making process. That's an aside. What I'd like to talk about is a, uh, is a different medrash found in a different part of the parasha, one which is less practical, more, more theoretical. Uh, before Yaakov actually meets Esav, he has the mystical 
strange, obscure meeting with a man in the middle of the night with whom he, with whom he wrestles. Chazal understood it as an angel, even though it doesn't ever say it explicitly in the parasha, um, but he does speak in the name of God. And specifically, Saroshel Esav. This angel represents Esav. The night before he meets Esav for real, he meets Esav in a metaphorical, symbolic, spiritual sense and fights with him all night and doesn't exactly win, doesn't exactly lose, but he succeeds. He succeeds in having a fair fight. Vayuchal. Uh, he doesn't lose. Uh, many people have pointed out the practical ramifications of this would indicate that he doesn't exactly come out 100% either. He is limping, which is why we don't need Gidan Asher. Yaakov comes out, he is uh, wounded by this encounter, but nonetheless successful, and in fact, gets a bracha. He forces the opponent to actually give him a bracha, and in fact, his name, Yisrael, is derived from this encounter, which the Sarosh al-Esav gives him, and the name means for you contended with God and man and you succeeded. So it's a complicated picture. It's not just that you will succeed, you also get from it a bracha, you actually benefit, you become Yisrael, before that you were Yaakov, you become Yisrael because of this encounter, this fraught encounter with the other. But you shouldn't think you only win, you also lose, you're also limping. That's something which we are enjoyed to remember forever. There's a certain Isa not to eat the sinew uh, forever. It's part of, part of Jewish halacha to remember that Yaakov was wounded, injured in his encounter with Esav, uh, or at least the Sarosh al There's a medrash. The medrash uh, has a number of things really far extended beyond the pshat. Um, <clears throat> you have an angel. You have in the end, the angel says, send me away because it's my time to go. He says to Yaakov, Yaakov is holding him there. They're entwined in the battle, in the wrestling. Shalcheni ki Allah hashacha. Send me for the morning has come. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What I think because it's the morning. So since Chazal knows an angel, they say, it's my job now. I'm one of the ministering angels to God. And I have to say shira. It's time for me to sing my song before God. So you have to let me go. And Yaakov says, I'm not going to let you go until you give me a bracha. So the Medrash expands on this idea of the ministering angels, and I want to quote a fascinating medrash, which again, it doesn't have direct implications for how to deal with Gaim, but it's about the ultimate relationship of Jews and non-Jews and uh, being in Gullus and how we understand it. Um, <clears throat> the medrash opens up, it's Pasha Ein Chet, Aleph, 78.1. K'tiv, Pasuk literally means Pasuk in Eicha. Every morning it is new. Great is your faith. I'm just going to quote the first line, which has nothing to do with what I want to talk about, but it's an important line. means the world, or human beings, or the Jews, are new, are mechudashim. Every morning, the idea being that at night when you sleep, you're basically dead. Therefore, you're revived in the morning from scratch. Since we see that we come back to life every morning, as 
Chadashim Nabkarim, the fact that every morning life springs up anew, afresh, that is the basis for Rabbi Munatacha. We can trust you. The promised to first line is that the really fully dead will also come back alive. So we experience this every day. So we're therefore we're we're confident that you will fulfill it in the future. The next line says that it's about national history, not personal history. That every time there's a deepening of the galut, every time there's a tzara, every time the malchut overcomes the Jews, we nonetheless spring back to the ultimate geula. Okay, but then we get to my line. Edra says there were ministering angels in the heavenly court angels sing shira sing song to God every day they're new the angel is created for only one role and he fulfills it and he's finished that's what this medrash says and apparently it doesn't actually say it explicitly, but the reason why it's here is because Chadashim la bekarim Everything is created anew every morning. So every morning there is a new set, a chorus. The choral, the angelic choral group is created afresh every day. Uh, and then you have the following story. Andrianus shrik tamia sh'alet Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya. Uh, and the Anush Shrik Tamia is apparently the Emperor Hadrian. Shrik Tamia means let his bones be uh, destroyed. It's the opposite of Zecha Tzadik Livracha. It's Yimach Shmo. That's his name. Hadrian was the emperor who was responsible for destroying, among others, destroying Jerusalem in the time of Bar Kochva. Not in the time of, uh, not the time of the, uh, of the destruction of the temple, but years later, the Bar Kochva revolt. And they didn't like, they didn't like Hadrian. Adrianus Shkitamia, he had a conversation with Oben Hanania, who was one of the Tanaim, who spent a lot of time in Rome, he was close to the Roman administration. He heard this medrash, that the choral groups, the ministering angels, sing one time. But every day, God makes a new group of Malachim, and they say Shira, and then they disappear. He said, yes, that's what we, that's what, that's what we told. That's what we teach. So he said, where do they go? Where do spent, used, Malachim goes, asking, where's the uh, old age home for Malachim? If you, if you say they only can do it once, but what happens to the old ones? Uh, he's a woman, he's curious about the administration. Is there a special, uh, is there a farm? For old and useless, uh, useless angels. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Chania said to him the following: Amar mithan de itbarian. He said, "Go to the place from where they come, from where they're created. They return to from where they're created." Sounds like the person dies, he returns to the dust from which he was created. So the angels go back to where they're created from. So he said to him, "Umin anhein itbarian. Where are angels created from?" What is the source of angelic existence? Amalo, Rabbi Yeshua ben Chanenya said to him, Min Nahar Dinor, from the river that's called Dinor. Dinor means of fire. So I don't think it's, a na- it's not the name of the river. He's saying they are created from a river of fire. 
there's a river of fire in heaven. Angels come out of it, and when they sit, they do their once single appearance, and they return to the river of fire. So the the, the emperor is getting interested. He said, "Really, what's this river of fire? Ma'iskedin how do you know? What's uh, special about?" The river of fire. It could be that he didn't realize it was a river of fire. Maybe he thought it was a, the name of the river. Or if he didn't know, he was like, what, what's, tell me about the river of fire. So, but Yeshua ben Chai decided to tell him one fact. And by doing so, he set himself up for an attack. Which is why it's interesting. He could have told him a lot of things. He could have told him it's very hot. He told him one thing. He said, Kahadein yardena, de lo pasik lo velobelelia. He said, Nahadino, it's like the Jordan River that doesn't cease. It says cease, but apparently it means it doesn't change. The Lopasik Lobiyamama Velobilelia. It's constant flow. It doesn't cease neither by day nor by night. The flow is constant. That's what I want to tell you. That's the interesting fact, factoid of Nahadino. What does the river come from? What's the source of the river? Okay, so here's an answer which I'm not going to really comment on because it's already getting to be too complicated and too mystical. He said, the the river of fire, is created out of, um, there's something here which I would like to ask you to think about, but I'm not going to try to answer it myself. It's created from the sweat of the Chayot HaKodesh, of the sacred animals who are bearing the throne of God. Based on the chapter in Yechezkel, there are Arba Chayot for uh, creatures who, on which sits, on which God sits. Here it says they bear the throne of God. And it's very heavy. So they're sweating, and their sweat becomes the fire of the Haudino from which the angels are created. Okay, please think about that, what it means, what is it trying to say. I'm interested in the next point. There was an officer, a Roman officer, of the uh, Caesar Hadrian, who was listening to the conversation, and he said, what are you talking about? I've been to Palestine. And the Jordan River is not constant. The language says, it flows by day, doesn't flow by night. I assume it means that it has, there's more or less. It goes up and down. It's not constant. So your whole, your whole vote disappeared. You say, then how do you know? It's like the Jordan, which, and what's so special about it? Constant flow, no ebbs, no nothing. It just constantly flows, day and night, same thing. Lo yishpotu. I've been to the Jordan River, says the officer, the Sunaktedron. And it's not true about the Jordan. Yeshua answers him, You should go check it out. One time, I was at the place called Beit Pa'or. Beit Pa'or, in this case, means the source of the Jordan. It's the place today called Banyas. 
which the Romans called Panias. It was a temple of idolatry to the god Pan. Which is why it's called Beit Pa'or. Beit Pa'or is the name of a place of idolatry based on the idolatry in, in Sefer Bamidbar. If you went there, That's the end of the Medrash. He said, you're right. If you check the Jordan by Yericho or in Beit Shan, so it's nothing special. It ebbs, it flows, there's more and there's less. But if you go to the source, you go up to the place where it comes out of the mountain, out of the cleft in the mountain, the cave of Banyas, Today the water doesn't flow out of the cave, but the cave is still there. In the, in the past, in the distant past, the water actually came out of the cave. If you go to the source, the Beit Pa'or, the place, the, the gash in the rock from which the Jordan River begins, you'll see that the water is constant and has no change in its flow, neither by day nor by night. What does this Medrash mean? What are they talking about? Are they really talking about rivers? So, I'm going to suggest the following suggestion. And as I said, this is not a practical consideration like the previous Medrash I brought. It's not telling you how you should deal with your neighbors. It's telling you what you should think about, about your neighbors and about our conflict with the non-Jewish world. The Romans rule in Palestine. The Jews are at an ebb. Their river is not flowing. And he says, your God, how does he operate? He says, oh, he's a king. Our God is Melech Malcheyam Lachim. You Roman emperors are small change compared to the God who sits in heaven. The emperor says, really? You have a nice court? He says, yeah. There are malachim who sing every day. Shirosh HaMelech, a heavenly, heavenly choir. He says, yeah, I heard that they, uh, they only get to sing once. He says, that's absolutely right. He says, where do they go afterwards? He says, they go back into the river of fire from which they come. Then the king is getting interested. He says, tell me, the source of the grandeur of your God, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about your God, your king. His grandeur is the song that the angels sing for him. That's the, uh, that's what we call Tiferet. That's the, the grandeur of the kingship is this beautiful choir that sings his praises. That comes from the river Dino. Wow, tell me about this river Dino. What's, what's so special about it? He says, it's constant. It's not subject to aliyot viridot. It doesn't wax. It doesn't wane. The power of God, the grandeur of God, the kingship of God is a constant and nothing can affect it. You can't add to it. You can't, you can't detract from it. Just like the Jordan River, which, why the Jordan River? That's the water of Eretz Yisrael, the water of Palestine. The life of the Jewish people comes from the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, just like, reflects on earth what the Nahadino reflects in the sky. Says this Roman officer who rules over the Jews. He's been to Palestine. He had a job there. He collected taxes. He probably killed a few people as well. He says, I've seen your Jordan River. It's not much. And what's more, it's totally dependent on other conditions. More rain, less rain. Sometimes it almost dries up. It's pasik. There are times when it's close to drying up. Maybe it even dries up completely. What are you talking about? You Jews are now 
in your ebb of your existence. I don't know if you're coming back. We've conquered Palestine, and your kingship is flawed if non-existent, and your life blood is flawed if almost non-existent. And what's this constancy that you're talking about? So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya confesses. He's Moda, you're right. You're right. We are in the ebb of our existence. But you're seeing only an external manifestation. If you go back to the source on earth, not only in the heaven, because he's talking about the heaven, if you go back to the source of the Jordan, Beit Pa'ol, the cave of Banyas, where the water flows from, you'll see that it doesn't change neither by day nor night. Essentially, as opposed to your kingship, my Roman friends, your kingship is dependent on, on, on external factors. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. The world is a wheel. And who's down today will be up tomorrow. Who's up today will be down tomorrow. That's the rule of the world. It's not connected to a true source. But Nahal Dinor and the Yarden, the Jewish people, he's making a political statement and not only a theological statement. They were talking theology. He made a point, Rabbi Shur ben Chananyev saying, the theology of our God, opposed to your gods, is different. It's a Nahal Dinor, it's a river of fire, and the river of fire is created by the exertion of they who support God's kingdom, the sweat of their brow. It's a negative thing, but that's the source of this river of fire. And this river of fire has no fluctuation whatsoever. God's kingship is Hashem Malach, Hashem Melech, Hashem Malach, Hashem Yimloch, Lo'olam Ved. Before the world was created and after the world was created, God's kingship is kingship. Adon Olam Hashem Malach, B'Tayim Kol Yitzin And that, if you want to know something, that's also Naharayadeh. That's also our river. Now that is against common sense. It's against the, the, the testimony of our eyes, says the Roman officer. So he says to them, okay, your eyes are misleading you. There are, practically speaking, fluctuations, but don't even imagine for a second that those fluctuations indicate a weakness in the source. And therefore, they also don't indicate a possibility of cessation tomorrow. Because at its source, the source is constant. Our God is king over everything, even at times when in the world his name might be obscured by the grandeur of the Roman Empire. And Jewish existence is also a constant, even though at a given time it might appear to be obscured by the might of the Roman conquering uh, army and, 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 Roman, and Roman Empire. So once again, I, I finish my point. You have here an interesting conversation between the source of Roman power and a Jewish sage discussing theology of the Jewish God, very uh, symbolic terms, Creatures bearing God's throne, sweating sweat, creating a river of fire from which angels come and every day say a fresh song. The fresh song, notice the paradox. Every day God's kingdom is fresh 
out of the constancy. You have both sides of the equation. It's not, it never gets stale because the song is totally new each day. New angels are singing it. Ah, if it's new each day, then who knows what it'll be tomorrow? Uh Uh-uh. The new angels each day are derived from the river of fire, which is lo pasak lo biyamama bablabadayla. Chadashim labakarim rabai emunatecha. The newness of each day indicates the steadfastness of God's promise. It's constantly renewed, never fluctuating, even though it's always fresh and new. Holding on to both those two sides of the, of the equation, both completely new and yet rooted in eternity, in something which never changes, non, non-changing freshness, non-freshing, non-changing recreation, Hitchachut is the secret of God's kingship and the secret of Jewish existence. Something to which the proud conquerors of the Roman Empire are unable to understand. And that's also something about our relationship to the rest of the world. To history, to fluctuations, to politics. Things change, things go up, things go down. But we hold on to the fact of Chadashim Karim Rabba Emunatecha Dalopasek Lobiyamama Vilobeleila. Shabbat Shalom.